This episode of AD History is brought to you by listeners like you, contributing through the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Learn more about how you can support the show by visiting patreon.com forward slash AD History Podcast and the exclusive benefits that await you for your generous support. Join us in the effort to keep creating the AD History you deserve by visiting patreon.com forward slash AD History Podcast. Thank you. Have you ever wondered how and why the Roman economy nearly collapsed in the crisis of the 3rd century? Or what led to the formation of the short-lived Gallic Empire? Well, do we have some stories for you. This is the AD History Podcast, weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. And brought to you via New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DiCostanzo, and today I am joined by not only a guest contributor, but a guest host. Patrick is off today, and today I am joined in his seat for today's episode, filling in one Robert DiCostanzo. And no, this is not a coincidence. He is indeed my brother. And for all intended purposes, he's going to give us some insights that, quite frankly, on a subject, neither Patrick or myself could do with the kind of authority is necessary. So I'll start by saying, Robert, thank you for joining us here today. Great. Thank you, Paul. You are very welcome. And it's interesting. There's something of an interesting irony in all of this, because my guess is that the first time this episode would ever have well, record an episode with two people in the same location, it would be done with Patrick. But until we are able to globetrot again, more or less as normal, that will have to wait for another time. So we are actually both in the same place, in the same studio, which I think is fantastic. And Robert is here to talk to us about specifically Roman finance and the Roman economy, both in general and its state and issues regarding its role in Rome's crisis of the third century, which is something, once again, neither Patrick or myself can do. So he's pulling double duty here, which I thank you very much for, by the way. Well, I'm glad to be of service. I certainly feel the pressure. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, you know what they say? What did Harry Truman say? If you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. I think you are more than suited to hang out in our kitchen. And so why is Robert here today talking to this about us? Well, one is he has been and worked as a financial analyst for over a decade now, has an incredible mind when it comes to these sort of things. And with all respect to him, he is his own historic knowledge powerhouse and has been for basically his entire life. That's something that I can most certainly witness to. But on top of that, yours truly is also going to get into the rise of the short-lived but extremely important Gallic Empire. So, We're getting into the real meat and bones today of the crisis of the third century. So with all of that, we'll kick it off. So let's introduce by going with our necessary, obligatory, now legendary AD History Podcast Ground Rules. One, evaluate events in the context they occurred. Two, over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. 3. Nothing in history was inevitable. And 4. 
history and the past is like a different country. So as I mentioned prior to this in the beginning of the episode, you are going to be talking to us about the Roman economy and its financial system, both in general, but specifically how it was operating in its very unique and extremely pivotal role in the crisis of the third century. As I mentioned before, this is not something either Patrick and I could do with the same kind of depth as you could. So really everything kind of fell into place as far as that goes today. And with that, Mr. DiCostanzo, Sir Robert, you have the floor. Great. And thank you for all the kind words. I'm very excited about the challenge and the topic here. It's something that as I was researching, and certainly Rome has been something that I've done research on in the past, and it's very interesting, but certainly the Roman economy is a topic that is fascinating because in so many ways it has parallels and lessons for today. No doubt. You know, if we're thinking about the crisis of the third century, which is obviously the primary topic and sort of where we sit in terms of the timeline, it's imperative that we have a discussion around the Roman economy and particularly the failings of that economy in terms of dealing with the crisis at hand. Yeah, there's, there's really no question about it. We think of finance and e economics in such modern terms today in terms of how it affects our world. But the truth of the matter is going back millennia, any sort of financial or economic crisis was almost always tied to a greater crisis or at the very least causing a greater crisis. And Rome was certainly no exception in this regard. Yeah, I would completely agree with it. And I think fundamentally, when we talk about economics, it is, in fact, its own social science. And so a discussion around the political history of a people necessarily involves a discussion around their economy, because it is a uniquely human thing to have an economy. And so in terms of having this discussion, it'll be great to talk about that in the context of Rome. So I think the best places to start is Give us the long and short of exactly how the Roman economy operated, as best as scholars can tell. Sure. And I think as best as scholars can tell is usually a good place to start when talking about history of economics. Certainly, even in short periods of time in the history, be it Roman or otherwise, even when there were good documentation to go off of, you still don't have a full picture. But I'll do my best in terms of what scholars do know about the Roman economy. Have at it. And as part of that, it's safe to say that the Roman economy, certainly for the ancient world, was an advanced one. It was definitely an agrarian society. And so as much as we talk about the great infrastructure works that were done and still remain with us today and the great roads that were built, it was still fundamentally about subsistence agriculture. And so that aspect, I think, is sometimes underappreciated given sort of those relics that we still have today. You go see the Colosseum and you sort of have these CGI projections of what it looked like filled with people. And sometimes you lose sight of what the entirety of the empire really was. And oftentimes it was about supporting Rome. You know, it's interesting because you talk about these great relics of Rome and Obviously, the Colosseum being its own thing and the various structures that still exist around Rome and the Italian peninsula. But when you're looking at the empire as a whole and the things they built, certainly the things that are the most impressive and have been the most long lasting, like, for example, aqueducts, those are most certainly built in mind for agriculture and distribution of water, most certainly not just to properly get clean water to its people, but 
for irrigation and agriculture. At least it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, so many of these structures were to support the very kind of economy you're describing. Absolutely. And I think building on that, the Romans were very conscious about how they thought about infrastructure investments and how those accomplished two goals, which in and of themselves were mutually beneficial. One was the military complex, right? Being able to transport armies efficiently as possible. Absolutely. And the second aspect was obviously creating a trade network. And even interestingly enough, the expansion of the empire certainly focused around going to areas that could be easily accessible via water. We'll get into sort of how that means in terms of a trade network, but that was quite intentional. I have no doubt. The, the Romans did very little that didn't have a very specific purpose in mind when they built. Their political decisions are a very different thing in many times, but when it came to actual infrastructure, their, their immense engineering abilities, they very seldom built for just grandeur. Absolutely. And I think that's a lot of what we see today in terms of the lasting impacts of what modern Europe looks like. I think just generally sort of getting back to what the structure of the economy looked of course, like. Of course. A lot of it was, I would describe as a hub and spoke system. Everything part of the spoke was really to support the hub that Rome was, quite selfishly. The whole idea and grain was really one of the principal aspects of this. And you think about the ancient world, there were not very many truly great large cities. I mean, we're talking about cities that could approach a million in population like Rome did. The only way you could do that was to take from elsewhere. And so that's exactly what the Romans did. And so you think of that, for example, Egypt. Egypt was a great grain hub to support all of the life in central Italy. Absolutely. I mean, it was in its time, part of the Roman Empire, their breadbasket. They did everything possible to make sure it was never vulnerable until it was. Absolutely. But I think it's also, to be fair, the Romans did institute a lot of things, particularly in Western Europe, which was far less developed. East Asia, the Near East, was developed for a very long time, obviously the cradle of civilization. The Romans, when they showed up there, inherited a lot of great infrastructure develop trading networks. But for example, in places like Gaul, which I know you're going to talk about, certainly the development there, they benefited a great deal from some of the standardization that the Romans introduced. Well, it's funny you bring up the infrastructure in the Near East, Middle East. The one thing that came to mind to me, in addition to the fact that there have been such incredible civilizations that inhabited it prior to the Romans, the other reason I'd imagine is because that's also where most of the money was. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, on the topic of money and the economy, we'll talk later about how the Romans handled the money, which has great lessons for future generations. But in any case, some of the things that the Romans did, which were particularly important, were introducing a common currency, standard weights and measures, things like that, which facilitate great economic development. So the real question now is how did all of this economic development really translate into money and how to support this great bureaucracy, but also the military complex necessary to create it. As it relates to that, the state, just like all states, relied on taxation. And of two, of, two of the most common ones were poll taxes, literally taxes just on everyone, 
just yeah. for existing. Yeah. Um, and the second was really around the idea of land taxes. And so there were numerous other taxes that the Roman taxation system was actually incredibly complex, perhaps to its detriment. <laughs> Talk about lessons for today. Yes, absolutely. But the other thing that was really important for revenues in the empire was also the spoils of war. And that facilitated two things. One, which was spoils directly for the soldiers serving in that theater, which is exceptionally important. That's one of the big reasons you join and make it a career. Absolutely. It wasn't just simply for citizenship. God, no. Although the other aspect of that was really what the flows were back to the central treasury. And that took its form in two ways, obviously just pure plunder. Yeah. <laughs> but the other aspect to it as well was creating client states that paid tribute, which was very, very Roman. And I know you've talked a lot about this. Tributary relationships were par for the course at this point and had been for a long time and will be for a long time to come. Sure. And so ultimately, what the other aspect that it was introduced through this sort of conquest to fund the economy, if you will, was also an extensive use of slavery. And it's, it's interesting because obviously slavery is free labor to an extent. You obviously have to feed and clothe and have slaves survive. But the other aspect to it as well is, is that slavery in and of itself is actually not a very productive, from an economic standpoint, way of using human capital. I'm curious about that. Well, because fundamentally, it's all about manual labor largely, right? When you have slavery, there's no economic incentive to develop, right? Just in terms of specialization. And the Roman economy, part of the reason why it was so advanced, despite the fact that it was agrarian, was the ability, given its hub and spoke model, to actually have specialization. Which, of course, is also a hallmark of the economy most economies have today. Absolutely. The idea of comparative advantage, which is to say that certain places are better at producing goods than others, meaning more efficiently. And so by virtue of having this vast trading network, which often was inward facing rather than with other countries, if you will, or other empires, if you will, was really around the idea that grain was most efficiently produced in, in Egypt. Therefore, people in Italy could do other higher value activities. And I find this interesting because the way you're describing is all of this seems to be in service to the central point, Rome. And as you're going through this, it very much reminds me of a term that I think might be highly applicable here, which is to describing even when it was operating properly and coherently, at least as the Romans had it planned out, as a vampire economy. Well, I think that is an accurate description in, in some ways. I mean, certainly there was mutual benefits for the provinces as well through having an effective central government. But to your point, ultimately was all to serve the elites in central Italy. The Italian peninsula was really the focus of Rome and everything else around it was just a means to facilitate that. Yet there was still enough in terms of incentives for those in the provinces and those on the frontiers and when Rome expanded to buy into the system. Yes, absolutely. And I think we'll talk a little bit about what was going on in Gaul, particularly. Oh, yeah. But that's a prime example of where you saw a level of development that they otherwise would not have achieved, perhaps, by virtue of the Roman system. And from what I can tell, a lot of the, the Gallic elites for the longest time, almost two centuries after getting conquered by Julius Caesar, came to very similar conclusions in addition to others, which basically kept them in line. 
we have this kind of bird's eye view macro look at how the Roman economy operated. Where does this all start breaking down relative to the crisis of the third century? Absolutely. And I think we needed to tee that up. But the real question is, is how did it break down? And it's a good one. I think the biggest thing was that during this time of crisis, and and it had been going on for some time, was the idea of the immense military that needed to be supported. And I think if you think about all the things that were going on, right, the challenges, be it Germanic tribes or the Sassanid Empire, you had immense challenges to go ahead and raise an army to support that, notwithstanding the fact that there was a lot of internal struggles at the time. And so in that, just to give some context around that. Absolutely. Go ahead. The Roman military went from around 250,000 people in Augustus's time to over 600,000 by the time of Diocletian. And so Diocletian, and I know that you and Patrick will talk about him. Yeah, and his various reforms, which basically saved the empire for about a century. Absolutely. And so, you know, kind of look at that trajectory. And yet, when you look at the size of the empire, it didn't change that much, right? If Not anything, Trajan, it got a little no. bit smaller after Trajan, obviously. Yeah, that was the height. And yet, the military was more than two, two times as large. That's kind of the interesting thing, and this is something that's really worth noting and circling back onto our listeners. This is one of the reasons why, at the beginning of this third season, that I hooked around and spent some time focusing on Septimius Severus, because these decisions in regards to the finance of the military and increasing their pay all find their origin point with him, because prior that the Roman legion's pay hadn't been increased at the very least since the time of Augustus, which is in the area of almost two centuries. Absolutely. I think one of the quotes that I absolutely love to... Isn't this a great one? It is, is a great one. So Septimius Severus says to his two sons, Caracalla and Geta, live in harmony, enrich the troops, ignore everyone else. Uh, it, that's such an interesting quote. Well, it, it certainly had more meaning for Caracalla than it did Geta, because Geta didn't really live too much longer after receiving that advice. You can very clearly see that play out on the Berlin or Severin Tondo, if you will, where there's a big hole in that where Geta's head is supposed to be. But that's exactly what happened. And the thing is, it never stopped. Even when the Severins were in power anymore, it didn't stop. Absolutely. There is a continuous trend. And there are a lot of reasons why, and we'll talk about that in a second. But if you just look at sort of numerical perspective, Caracalla on his own increased the pay of the soldiers 50%. You look at that, and I don't know anyone else around here who got a 50% pay raise just for a change in power, but I think it speaks to the power dynamics in Rome, which is to say that particularly in the third century, and we've talked about the barracks emperors. Yeah, absolutely. The loyalty of the soldiers was the key to staying in power. And this is the thing I find so interesting, because even in the case of Caracalla, he ended up getting knocked off by his own coterie while he was on campaign. So even though you could buy Legion's loyalty to some extent, it was by no means a trump card that guaranteed their loyalty long term. They had a very transactional view of how they were going to pursue their fortunes depending on who was offering the best deal. Absolutely. It certainly was a time of, I would say, at short 
term loyalty amongst, <laughs> to, to put it nicely, perhaps backstabbing. Either one would probably be good. One is less of a euphemism than others, but they both work. Sure. And so, you know, sort of concluding on this point about the burden, it was simply unsustainable. And the real question is, is how did the Roman emperors decide that they were going to pay for all of this? That's really the interesting point. Exactly who's going around and saying, where's my money, man? Where's my money? Absolutely. It's uh, Fat Tony from The Simpsons. Oh, at the very least, there's definitely a racketeering feel to this whole thing as we go on. It's funny because it was something I was thinking about. It's like, this is so mafioso. Absolutely. We obviously talked about the taxes and the spoils of war to finance itself. But by the third century, Rome was well past its geographic peak, right? And so there was no new conquest, at least from a significant standpoint. There was obviously the borders shifted, right, depending on what was going on. Yeah, I think at this point, a lot of the Roman leaders seem to understand that any additional expansion based on very clearly and well-documented and demonstrative history really wasn't possible by this point. If they actually thought it was, well, you know, why not push in even deeper into the Parthians and later Sassanids? Why not go to the Cushions and go all the way to India? This is the amazing part about Rome, of course. We've talked about this on the show, which is that their empire grew so large and they managed to coordinate things seemingly so well, despite the fact that they were absolutely at square one as far as mass communication and being able to do that thing from a central point. It literally blows the mind. Well, absolutely. And part of that was the complex bureaucracy that they put into place, a civil service that didn't be matched until the parallel example in ancient China. That's also one of the great influences of Rome, has everything to do with how they structure their governance and administration, valuing personal property, protecting it in, an, in numerous ways. How did you collect taxes? What was the system for that? And really bringing in their very specific form of civilization, which in many respects, its influences last well past them. Well, absolutely. I think there's definitely lessons that were certainly taken into the medieval period and thereafter. but. Getting back to sort of the revenue problem, not only was the spigot dry in terms of being able to get the spoils of war, you also had just the immense turbulence during that time. And I'm probably understating it when I say that. You talk about 50-odd emperors during this time in a period of 100 years, quite a bit of upheaval. But also, there was great incompetence amongst those 50. Right. There's the concept of the, the citizen emperor, the, the one who's not sort of the landed noble, right? And many of the emperors were lifelong generals, right? Soldiers. I think in theory, that sounds great until you realize the immense administrative burden to essentially make this empire run. And certainly the emperor was not alone in with that task, but it all starts at the top. It certainly does, and there are myriad problems that come with having effectively the military in charge, because when they called them barracks emperors, I mentioned this a few episodes ago, when Patrick first introduced the term barracks emperors and them coming to power, the first thing that came to mind, and the only thing I could realistically call it, even though this term didn't exist at that time, it seems like Rome was operating under military juntas. Well, I think that's a, an interesting analogy. It's, it's not unfair. It's not a perfect analogy, to be sure, but the fact of the matter is the leader was 
a military man that was brought to power by his troops. However, he managed to coax them into doing what they did. And effectively, being a soldier does not necessarily mean that you are a terribly great administrator on the civilian side. There are benefits, of course, to having effectively civilian emperors, civilian heads of government, civilian heads of state. That's very much us looking from the present. And Rome had something of a tradition for that for quite a while. And even though they had very good generals that managed to do these things, we're definitely in a period where most of them are not. Absolutely. And I think, you know, what were some of the consequences of this? I mean, fundamentally, just stepping back, certainty is among the most important ingredients for business, of all of commerce, right? And part of the Roman Empire was really around trade, right? Both internally and obviously in terms of externally. When you think about what the disruption to trade was during this period, I think one of the most interesting pieces of data is about the number of recorded shipwrecks in the Mediterranean in this period. That is absolutely fascinating how we could reverse engineer that archaeologically, especially if it's properly dated, and use it as a general compass to get the general state of the empire's health at the time. You know, just to put some numbers around it, the number of shipwrecks declined by about half in the third century as compared to the prior century. Oh, my God. I mean, that that's ridiculous. I mean, the Mediterranean was a Roman bathtub at the time. It, and, and the fact that it's not facilitating this kind of activity is very important to note. It's interesting because when you say at first glance, the number of shipwrecks declined in half. Well, did they magically invent a new way of sailing or predicting the weather to avoid things? <laughs> we know that wasn't the case. And so what it really meant was that the volume of voyages had declined so much. And the reason why I'm focusing so much in talking about sea trade routes is because, and I know you've addressed this on another episode sort of obliquely, but fundamentally all trade, even today, especially okay, today, is actually most efficient oversea. Yeah, absolutely. Doing you know slow steaming with large barges that are continuously en route that can hold massive amounts of cargo. It's, it's not as fast as an aircraft, but it can carry a lot more. It's faster than most things, especially with international trade, of course. And in this case, for the Romans in their world, sending something over the Mediterranean is, for all intents and purposes, analogous to what we consider today, essentially, international commerce in a much smaller world to them. 100%. You know, a lot of people talk about the roads, and the roads were extremely important in their own right, mainly militarily, I would say, in terms of moving the legions, but for bulk goods, bulk commodities sea transport was really the most efficient way. You, know, you talk about sort of more specialized, smaller, fine goods. Sure, it might make sense to justify the effort and cost to do it over land, or sometimes you just don't have an option. But certainly, sea trade was the predominant way to transport the most critical commodities in the empire. So with that being said, certainly we look at it and the issue of the cost going up and there's not revenue to pay for it. This is kind of weird. I was doing some uh, some research on this myself, and as far as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, at the time, for the Romans in their world, there wasn't really a thing like debt financing for a government. That wasn't something that was really developed and implemented until the Italian city-states in around 1500. So in the case of the Romans, 
right place, wrong time, it sounds like something that could have really, really used at that point. Yeah, it's actually a very timely point and something that perhaps is underappreciated. So the Roman economy did have private financing. And so as part of private financing, certainly people could get loans to purchase things, and that certainly facilitated a lot of commerce. So there were banks. However, I think your point is particularly interesting because to your point, there was no public debt. There wasn't the idea that you know, you're going to go buy the savings bond to finance the war effort. And so that was a real issue for them. As innovative as the Romans were, you wonder why they didn't actually conceive of this themselves, but I, I'm, I'm guessing it was just a step too far at this point. There's also a certain element of trust in, that needs to be developed, and certainly it was something that, you know, the earliest examples of financing the government really date from the medieval times. Certainly you're talking about the Italian city-states, which certainly was an evolution of that, but certainly when you talk about medieval societies and I know we're sort of straying a little bit, but the idea that there was sort of the king's purse and then there was also the purse of the nobles. And so an interplay between those. And certainly there was there were times when they certainly borrowed from it. And so sort of just looking at back to the Roman example, we know they didn't have the money. And so what did they do to get it? They made more money. Yes. They made it rain with worthless coinage. Yes. I mean, the three options obviously were decreasing military spending. That wasn't going to happen. No. Two, raise taxes. And I don't know too many politicians and certainly emperors who are relying on the support of the military as well as the support, tenuous support of the greater populace who are really in a position to then go raise taxes. No, no, no. Very easily, and perhaps just as disingenuously, I could imagine a Roman emperor consulting with his Senate at the beginning of his reign, using the term, read my lips, no new taxes. Yes, I think that's a, it's an interesting way to put it, certainly from a historical context. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so they went with option three, as you were alluding to, which is what every seven-year-old thinks is the greatest idea ever. <laughs> what if I just started printing more money? It's money, right? Shouldn't this get the job done? Exactly. Ask and the Weimar Republic how that worked out. Exactly. And I think when you, when you start talking about that, that works to an extent, to the extent that people don't know that it's occurring. And so you can get away with that on the margin. But once it starts becoming widespread, people start to lose faith in the money that they're circulating. We're going to talk about how this played out in the third century, but this was actually a classic Roman playbook in terms of how they dealt with the escalating costs of the empire. What's Latin for quantitative easing? <laughs> I can't say that I know that, but, <laughs> but certainly they were, they were ahead of their time in that respect, right? Sure. And so with that, essentially their idea in the third century was to take what was going on from even as far back as Nero and accelerating that. Yeah, just keep slowly, drop by drop, removing the purity and inclusion of the silver that's in the denarii or the sesteris. The amazing part about that whole process with printing more money, having it contain less and less silver, 
if they thought people weren't going to notice. Yeah, it seems rather naive, particularly because the Romans did so many great things. These people were not just mindless subjects. Was it naive or or was it pure arrogance? I think that's probably a better way to describe (laughs) it, pure arrogance. But in any case, I think just backing up a moment, why should we even be talking about inflation? What are what are the, the real consequences in a larger sense? Yeah, let's talk about inflation in general, because we can't assume everybody knows. So by all means, jump right in. Yeah, absolutely. So what we're really talking about is currency, and currency is a fundamental tool to improve the efficiency of economic transactions. And so it's a store of value that can be exchanged such that, for example, a farmer doesn't need to trade grain for every single service they may or may not need. They can change it for currency, which they know and believe will be accepted by somebody else for a service. Back to the confidence issue. Absolutely. Essentially, avoiding this bartering, which is really what I was describing before, improves the efficiency of the economy immensely, so long as it's working well. And so to that extent, a good portion of the Roman economy was was monetized. And the reason what I mean by that is, is that most economic transactions could be done in terms of using currency, which is an advanced form of economic development. So on to inflation. What truly is it and why do we care? So inflation at its most basic level is a general rise in prices across the economy meaning that each coin you have now buys a little less than it used to. So now we cue the economic commentary from your parents (laughs) about how much things used to cost. I remember back in the day. Absolutely. And so that's a real phenomenon, right? We all experience this on an everyday basis. I mean, I think most listeners are old enough to know how things have gone up in price, and that's sort of a, a natural process in the economy. But the real issue is, is when things get out of hand. There is a lot of debate about why inflation occurs, but we do know from economic theory that fundamentally when you have hyperinflation, that is inflation that increases at such a great rate that you, in fact, don't trust the value, the store of value of money such that you may not even accept it as currency. Basically totally debasing the thing. Correct. When that happens, it's usually, not usually, always because of the idea of increasing the money supply faster than the size of the economy. Something that was going to say that's interesting here is that in the case of Roman coinage, it's obviously backed up by the amount of silver that is contained within it, which is interesting when you compare it to how we do it today with floating currency, whereas prior to Nixon taking us off the gold standard in, what, 71, 72, something like that? Yep. It was basically a guarantee of a small amount of gold that guaranteed the value of the transaction, which is what the Romans were doing and what most of the world today quit several decades ago. Absolutely. And probably to avoid a lot of the issues that Rome was dealing with right here. Yeah. And there are lots of issues with relying on bullion and fundamentally bullion in and of itself, right? I mean, gold and silver for our listeners in and of itself is just another form of currency. There's no intrinsic value in and of itself as much as to what we ascribe it to. Exactly. And so whether it's paper or whether it's gold is is sort of meaningless in, in the big scheme of things. But in any case, they used 
a very similar system what you're describing is essentially when someone got a coin they knew or they thought they knew <laughs> how much metal precious metal was in it and so the one quote i love which is from probably one of if not the most prominent economist of the 20th century is milton friedman he definitely shares the stage with john maynard keynes i would say in this case as well certainly certainly milton friedman was a classic chicago school economist and so he summed it up in a single sentence which is inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon in the sense that it is and can be produced only by a more rapid increase in the quantity of money than in output. And to sort of come back to that, what he's really saying is, is that people make up inflation arbitrarily. And so, so it's really the actions, in this case, of the Roman emperors creating it. It's not a natural phenomenon in and of itself. It's a, it's a matter of clearly bad policy. Absolutely. And so I think just sort of talking about the Daenerys, which was the key sort of coin, silver coin that was used by the masses yeah. uh, for most of the period of the empire. Looking at that silver content during the time of Augustus, which I always like to sort of frame it to that. He's pretty much the gold standard, whatever you think of him. Absolutely. And so the Daenerys was about 95% silver. That is a pretty nice clip. However, even well before the crisis of the third century, uh, by the time of Marcus Aurelius, it had gone down to 75% silver. And, and what I mean by that, and so why is that important, is that it shows a history of how Roman emperors, even in times that weren't purely crisis, which is obviously what we're talking about today, felt the need to rather debase the currency to solve the revenue problems. And it worked really well for a long time until it didn't. Absolutely. And, it, you know, going to what we were discussing earlier, it works so long as it's subtle. And that's sort of where they were going, you know, 20 percentage points down in silver content over a longer period of time. We'd see this accelerate quite a bit. And so when you look at starting with Caracalla and sort of throughout the third century, the practice was extended so much that by the second half of the third century, the content was less than 5%. That is absolutely ridiculous. And it's funny because when I was doing my research, we were talking a little bit before about how likelihood the Roman hubris to think that nobody would notice, but they absolutely did notice and that people were hoarding the higher content silver coins and they began no longer accepting the ones that it almost got to the point where they were at best silver plated and were mostly composed of copper. Well, that's 100%. At the end, it was essentially a silver coated coin. Yes, yes. And so you were getting at this, but what, what happens as a result of it, right? The first thing that people do is says, well, it used to cost you five denarius. Now it's going to cost you 10 because I know that the amount of silver in it is so much less. And the interesting thing about this is that it has a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? People expect prices to go higher. They expect you to debase the currency more. And so they raise their prices. And so each level of the economy, right, the supplier to the manufacturer to the consumer starts seeing higher prices. 
and people demand higher wages. And so it becomes a vicious cycle until, at a certain point, people stop accepting currency at all. And that's the thing about this, and definitely scholars have noted this, that one of the true examples of what you're talking about here was at a certain point, they stopped using it at all and just went to straight barter, which is a huge red light. Absolutely. You saw a, a great regression in sort of the economic efficiency. And so what this really meant was that there were already economic challenges by virtue of the drop in trade, by virtue of the fact that they had such a huge cost for the military, which was necessary. And then on top of it, you now have an economy that's in crisis as a result of bartering. This brings us to the question now, because we have to think about, well, what's the next most valuable thing to barter and where did they go with it? What, what really became something of a de facto currency for them? Well, so I think there's, there's a couple of things. One, one was that they just started taking everything in kind, but grain itself became a de facto currency just given its importance. That is absolutely a pinnacle example of how the Roman Empire was tottering at this point, is that this whole system had regressed to the point where grain effectively, among all other actual tangible items that could be exchanged, was then filling in for the absolute lack of value and confidence in the Roman financial system. I mean, it's just the regression is mind boggling. Well, I think the really interesting part and almost funny part, right? If you is, have a certain macabre sense of humor, yeah. Well, you, you think about it is that the Roman government in and of itself just stopped accepting their own currency because <laughs> they knew it was a bunch of nonsense. And yeah, so it tells it all, doesn't it? It, it, it really does. And w which is to say, I, I don't want to say that all taxes required using currency. Oftentimes the Romans did, you know, collect taxes in kind with, with goods. But this hit a whole new level in the third century directly as a result of their own actions. In addition to the, the clear financial issues in regards to the currency and, and denarii and sesteris and its debasing and basically turning into bartering again. What else was going on here? So there were a number of other elements, and I, I know we really did focus a lot on debasing the currency, but I do think that was one of the key elements. But there were a lot of other things going on too, one of which was nationalization of certain private enterprises as it relates to defense, just to ensure that the products would be there. So they literally seized ownership of the means of production for military wares. Absolutely. It, you know, the interesting thing is, is that when you have such economic instability, people then decide that they don't want to do what they used to do. And, and part of the reason for that is, is that they didn't think they were going to get a commensurate return for their time and effort. And so they leave cities or they go to cities, they leave what they're supposed to do, and the Romans couldn't afford that. I have to imagine if your business was producing military wares and the Roman central government forcibly seized it, I have to imagine that went over like a lead balloon. Certainly. And I think just across the spectrum, and we'll touch on this in the next segment, but there was a lot of localization of the empire in terms of what used to occur 
in one place, for example, we, we always go back to grain in Egypt, and it can't be overestimated or overemphasized. But essentially what happened was now each corner of the empire decided it needed to produce and be self-sufficient economically as well as also militarily. And that caused all sorts of issues because Rome itself couldn't live to the standard in which it did without that level of complexity and having the provinces support it. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you start seeing people leave places like Rome and leave their specializations there. That seems to be a pretty clear indication that they're then at that point far more worried about pure subsistence and survival, which in terms of the absolute necessary means to do so, probably being found elsewhere in the provinces as opposed to Rome, which was just very reliant on bringing all of these things in as opposed to producing it themselves. Sure. And, you know, there were other things that contributed to that. You know, you had the plague of Cyprian, which I know we'll also discuss, but that was quite devastating to urbanization. And so you had a number of issues that coalesced all at one point to cause a pretty bleak picture that nearly caused the empire to totally collapse. Absolutely. But it doesn't look like they did do one very interesting thing to try to drum up more tax revenue. Yeah. So so there there have been instances during the third century in which they actually increased the eligibility for citizenship just to expand the tax base. It wasn't exactly an ideological decision. No, no. But, you know, I think the lesson, though, is that the Romans somehow managed to get themselves out of it. Yeah, and it goes by the name of Diocletian. A hundred percent. And I won't give the spoilers ahead of time as to where things will go. Of course. Thank you. But part of it was fundamentally stable, competent leadership. Well, yeah. I mean, that really is the name of the game when it comes to economics and finance and doing business and having a a robust functioning economy. I mean, my goodness, the thing that amazes me is how they managed to get out of this absolutely ridiculous quagmire. Well, you know, if you look at what has happened in history, often what the solution is to introduce a new currency. And so the Daenerys actually ended up stopping being used by the end of the third century because it was basically worthless. And new currencies were were introduced to, to sort of shore things up. But that in and of itself is not a solution. Certainly it is helpful and, and necessary, but it's really about stability. And, and you know, Diocletian in and of himself from an economic policy perspective was not perfect. He actually had his edict on maximum prices, which was an abject failure. For all of his failures, and obviously we'll get into what he did and his reforms in a later episode, which really do wrap this crisis of the third century, for all his failings, he managed through his actions to, at the very least, keep the empire in one general functioning peace, even though it's really, I believe, by the end of that, it goes officially east and west for another century. And that's a hell of an accomplishment. A hundred percent. And I think it can't be understated about how he was able to, from an economic perspective, dig them out of this mire. Looking back at this, if you were to wrap this up into, God, if it's even possible, a neat little bow on this, what is the lesson here in your eyes? Well, I think the lesson is, is that balanced budgets matter <laughs> in the long run. Foreshadowing some. Go ahead. 
And I think also as part of that, it's how important maintaining economic ties are, which is to say that if you find yourself in a situation where you are sort of in the red, at the same time also destroying the base at which to pay that really you know, makes things tumble. Robbing Peter to pay Paul is no economic policy. 100%. But I also think the lesson as part of this is how interconnected politics, the military, and the economy are. They're all the same in, in, in terms of how they're connected. And that's the amazing thing about Rome is that the deeper you go into it and the more you study them and you begin to kind of parse through the details for all their failings and for all their successes, in so many ways, they are so ahead of their time where the only comparison you can really make to them on this scale, on this level of longevity, on this level of sophisticated, albeit at times truly mind-boggling bureaucracy, the only comparison you can make to it is the various incarnations of China coming and going who, as time went on, really nailed down a lot of this stuff themselves. Well, and I think also provides a, a very important link that would later be transported back to Europe at times. And so it, it's funny, we, we always talk about how these things are all geographically and culturally separate. But if you go long enough, you see how they connect back together. And that is always the beauty of AD history. Thank you for presenting that to us, Robert. That was beautifully done. And with that, we'll be back right after a word from Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at ADHistoryPC and the hashtag ADHistory. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast, as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash AD History Podcast. Also, check out the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See how you can help support the show and the rewards that await you by exploring the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See the link in the description. Now, back to Paul and Patrick. Okay, now it's time for our Patreon Submitted Questions segment. And this one's interesting, and I'm really glad that I have you here today with me in this, because I think you and I could really tackle this well together quite uniquely. It's something we have a little bit of fun with, certainly something that really falls within our shared wheelhouse. And of course, that question comes in the form of a Patreon submission. So if you donate on the $5 tier or higher, you can submit a question for us to answer in the middle segment of your choice. It could be anything about what we covered, anything about history coming up, anything having to do with Patrick or myself and our professional lives. That's all in bounds. And today is an interesting one. How is it that Hitler fooled Stalin so completely with Operation Barbarossa? It seems like the most obvious intention basically in history. How can you miss this? You know, we could talk for hours on this subject, but we don't have hours. This is also something of a historical whiplash based on our previous segment and we're going to do next, but that's the nature of the Patreon submitted question segment. So I think it's really best to kind of understand what we're dealing with here. So when it came to August of 1939, and obviously Hitler had his sights set on Poland, there was only one way that he could guarantee that he would have what he wanted and not worry about potential Soviet incursion to those plans. 
And at the time, of course, Stalin was weighing the various diplomatic options. Does he go into a pact with the Western powers, or does he do something that's the ultimate Voss and make an agreement with the ideological enemy of the last decade in the case of Hitler? And of course, that's what they did through the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. And as we know, they were very, very careful to call this pact merely a pact of non-aggression. And when we say Molotov-Ribbentrop, we're talking about both of their foreign ministers. In this case, Vyacheslav Molotov and Joachim von Ribbentrop for Nazi Germany. And so while they're being very, very careful to really make sure that they called it, this new political relationship, a non-aggression pact, the fact of the matter is it went so much further from there to the point which upon later scholarship, especially after the collapse of the Soviet Union, we realized that in reality, Hitler and Stalin started World War II in Europe hand in hand. Well, I think it's safe to say that the pragmatism of both leaders certainly triumphed over ideology. For a little while. For a little while. This is such a great story and it's a great question because it's something that's been studied for a long time. And until all of the records post the fall of the Soviet Union. And by the way, there are still lots of records we don't have. Yeah, the Russians have been cutting us out and out more and more and more, giving us less access to outside scholars now. But, but certainly even the scholarship that was done in the 70s was, by today's standards, the documents that we do have, insufficient for this topic. And so I'm really excited to talk through sort of the real politic of it in terms of how this came to be. And certainly, honestly, was one of the most important parts of the early parts of World War II. It's amazing how specifically, and especially World War II in Europe, this thread goes through it so profoundly in every way. And in fact, this agreement in most respects demarcates current borders in Eastern Europe to this day. Uh, 100%. I think maybe it's helpful just to talk a little bit about the specifics of what was in the pact. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Specifics are really where it's at. So basically, initially, they spoke of it as a pact of non-aggression where the public agreement of it was not even remotely the substance of it. There was, of course, what we know today as the secret protocol. And we know about the secret protocol and we've known about it since basically the end of World War II because we found it through captured German documents. And it was definitely not something the Soviets were all too proud of. So when you got into this secret protocol, they basically started dividing up Eastern Europe between them. Basically, the Germans ceded all three of the Baltic states, a general sphere of influence over Finland, as well as in Romania with what we know today as Moldova at the time was known as Bessarabia, and that they also demarcated half of Poland. In reality, I think they settled just around the river Bug in terms of that shared frontier. So one of the lesser known aspects of World War II, everybody knows that Hitler invaded Poland on 1 September 1939. The lesser known subject is when the Soviets invaded the other half of Poland 17 days later, which by agreement in the secret protocol was within their sphere of influence. And then from there, they proceed to go and have a, what we can only call a Pyrrhic victory over Finland over the Karelian Isthmus because Stalin was incredibly worried about the proximity of the Finnish border prior to 1939 to Leningrad. So his little quip was, well, if we can't move Leningrad, we got to move the borders. And when the Finns didn't play ball at the end of November of 1939, 
the Soviets invaded in what was catastrophic. The Finns put up a much stronger fight than they ever anticipated, and while they eventually got their territory at the Karelian Isthmus, in addition to some other successes, but generally something like 250,000 Soviet dead against a Finnish army that had something totaled like five or six divisions, that's truly insane. Then, of course, early 1940, they forcibly absorb all three of the Baltic states. They take Bessarabia, which we know is Moldova, and of course, even though it actually expanded beyond the understandings of the pact, they also took northern Bukovina, which was also part of Romania at the time as well. And that's where the trouble starts. That's where the trouble starts because the Germans didn't see the agreement that way. No, not in the least. No, not at all. But there were other tangible years for both sides because the, the German grand strategy at this point was very much in some ways understood through the First World War model, which is that there's going to be a British blockade at sea. So there's no chance of bringing in resources from elsewhere that we might have gotten them from prior or even from the British and their colonies directly. And of course, a lot of the things that Hitler needed, things like grain, oil, precious metals, you name it, all of those were found in abundance in the Soviet Union, not just because that's where all of those resources were located, but because the Soviet economy was so geared to producing those things anyway. 100%. There was huge economic incentive, particularly for the Germans, to get these resources. And from the Soviet perspective, very pragmatically, Stalin knew he needed to buy time. It's interesting because the war that occurred on the Eastern Front was a war that both sides knew was inevitable. There was no doubt in their minds. I mean, Stalin had read Mein Kampf. He knew it was coming. Yeah, he had it entirely marked up. The question was, when was it going to come? And that was the thing that Stalin was continuing to do everything possible to postpone. A hundred percent. Because one of the aspects of coming to this agreement, of course, was buying time and appeasing the Germans and keeping them well-focused on the other side of Europe. What Stalin never anticipated, or rather, I can tell you what he did anticipate, I can tell you what he wanted and what he thought would happen, which was a war of attrition very similar to the First World War occurring on the Western Front, in which case you have all of Germany's focus and military assets in the West, France and the UK being the main allies, being totally invested there, and giving him a free hand to do various things he'd want to do that wouldn't have been possible otherwise, basically giving him a blank check to play agent provocateur and keep both sides fighting as viciously as possible. Exactly. And this is a bit of an aside, but in general, right, the thinking in World War II reflects a thinking that hadn't changed since the Franco-Prussian War, which was the exact same playbook over and over, except for this time, the script changed. The script changed significantly, and this is an old military adage. The victors are always fighting the last war. But I've kind of adapted this, which is to say, the best policy is you need to fight the current war while preparing for the next war, while trying not to fight the last war. And that's not easy to do. And because military planning and whatnot it can be so myopic, especially if you've won the major conflict, albeit a one of the greatest Pyrrhic victories in the case of the Entente in the First World War, there's no greater monument to that thinking at the time than the friggin' Maginot Wall. Yes. And, and I think, you know, in that context, because both leaders, both Stalin as well as Hitler, knew that this war was coming, the real question is, is how exactly to the first question that we got that got us here, how on earth 
were the Soviets surprised or really were they surprised? So this is a difficult question. So just to kind of round things out, as you mentioned, they knew the war was coming. And so Stalin was naturally doing everything to appease it. And in his eyes, not only was he getting to Hitler, increasing amounts of these resources that we mentioned, it didn't happen all at once. It started as a drop and it got larger and it fluctuated depending on how Stalin saw the situation at the time. And so they negotiated a pair of very large commercial trade agreements where in addition to Germany getting all these resources, the Soviet Union walked away from a, with a lot of really, really useful civil and military technologies that were proprietarily developed by German companies, of course. Mm -hmm. When you start getting into 1940 and Stalin is totally disabused by the fact that the West falls in six weeks, he basically goes into panic mode. As far as Stalin could ever go into panic mode. Sure. I mean, the only real reflections we have on what he was saying and thinking at this time is actually through Khrushchev's memoirs for the most part. Yes. Where basically he's listening to the radio reports and he's saying out loud, he's like, can't the British and the French even put up a fight? And at this point, he knows he's screwed. He knows that danger is upon him, but he's trying to postpone this. So one of the ways he's doing this is trying to put it off through this trade. On top of that, there's also military collaboration, literally from the invasion of Poland from sending out Luftwaffe navigational signals in Minsk. And on top of that, there's also the Basis Nord Agreement, where Ribbentrop goes to Stalin and says, hey, you know, can we have a U-boat base at Murmansk? And Stalin's like, yeah, yeah, okay. He didn't give him exactly what he wanted. He gave him one that was like 30 miles away and totally isolated. It became totally unnecessary after the conquest of Norway. Correct. So he's doing everything possible to appease him. And as this is happening, Hitler is in this interesting position where he's asking himself, can I invade the British Isles? Is there a political will on my part to do this? And ultimately, the answer was no, because first and foremost, let's get this right. The British were still a marine superpower at the time. Yes. The Germans definitely were not. Plan Z, which was the major naval construction project for both surface fleet and U-boats, was not expected to be completed at the earliest until three years after Hitler plunged Europe into war. Naturally, there's no bridge across the sea. The Blitz, the Battle of Britain, all of that in reality is actually, despite the amazing damage it did, and as awful as it was, it was a demonstration of German strategic weakness and limitations. Well, I'd also say that it's, it's important in the context of thinking about the racial ideology that governed sort of Hitler's thinking on, on the subject. And, and what I mean by that is, is that he considered the British to be kindred brothers, right? And that the British could be reasoned with. And so he obviously had practical reasons for what you were describing, right? It would be a very difficult task to accomplish, even the best of circumstances. But also in his mind, he always thought there could be an accommodation with the British. Specifically when you're doing this kind of strategic bombing to try to crack the morale and try to get a new government in charge that doesn't include one Winston Churchill. Sure. And that was part of the wild card. He could not have predicted ahead of time. He certainly miscalculated in that regard. No question about it. He, he was still thinking along the lines of, oh, you know, there has to be a another Neville Chamberlain, another Lord Halifax in there that's going to come sweeping in and we can finally come to a general end to European hostilities. And he wasn't wrong. It simply didn't happen. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and where does that set us up in terms of context? 
Well, certainly on the Western Front, there was a stalemate, essentially, that existed. And so what was Hitler's next move? Ultimately, you mentioned it just before, you have to go into his ideological framework here. And the one thing that, that Hitler was always a guiding truth for him and all of Nazism was that Moscow was the epicenter of what they called the Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy, a whack patchwork ideology that basically flowed from the idea that communism was a, quote, Jewish conspiracy and that Moscow was the epicenter of that theory, especially insofar as to what they thought was enslave all of humanity. We know how ridiculous this is. But from a geopolitical standpoint, the last great power on the continent of Europe was still the Soviet Union. And Hitler always saw Germany as a land power. Yes. And that his preparation from the Wehrmacht and every way that he prepared for this war, especially when you have this lack of naval prowess, very much shows the limitations and scope of Hitler's strategic thinking, which was very much limited to being a continental power which preferably would run all the way to the Urals, basically from Archangelus to Astrakhan down on the Caspian Sea. So when we're going through this and, and we're looking at this naturally, eventually, with there being no real possibilities of the British, this is a total non-starter for them. Hitler began looking across the European map. And while there were people that can talk about the potential, quote-unquote, peripheral strategy, where you go through Libya and Egypt, you take the Suez, you cut off that artery to the empire, and then you go to the Middle East oil fields. Well, it makes sense, that's something that was, once again, really beyond Hitler's strategic vision at this point. And so naturally, after the fall of France, there's a significant strategic redeployment of the Wehrmacht to the east, continuously building from the summer of 1940 to its pinnacle in late spring 1941. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, how is Stalin viewing this at that time? And that's where things start getting really strange. The first thing that I would dare to point out in this case is, as you mentioned earlier, Stalin most definitely got his own Russian translation of Mein Kampf, and he marked it up significantly. We know this because Simon Sebag Montefiore has actually seen it and used scholarship from it. And for those who are not in the know, Stalin was a prodigious reader. He was incredibly well-educated. It's something that goes under the radar by all means. And in his case, having read Mein Kampf, he very much held on to one very important thread, which in Mein Kampf states one of the major reasons Imperial Germany lost the First World War is because they fought it on two fronts. In the case of Stalin, he always held to this, but there's a problem with this thinking. He's applying First World War thinking to today and the idea that Hitler will stay steadfast to this particular ideology that he laid out 20 years before. The problem with this thinking is there is not a single fighting troop of the Allies on the entire European landmass at this time. Sure, you have the Battle of Britain, you have the bombing, you have strategic bombing by the British of Germany, you have the fighting that is going on in North Africa, which to Germany is a sideshow. They're never that interested. They put resources there, but they're not interested as far as what the Italians are doing. They're getting sick of bailing out the Italians at this point, to be sure. And so you have this buildup in the East. And so the first question you have to ask yourself is, is there an intelligence failure here? Most certainly not. No, that's the amazing part about this, is both the NKVD, which is 
roughly translated, the, the Ministry for Internal Security, which is spying on your, your own people, spying abroad. And then, of course, you have the GRU, which is the Red Army's intelligence arm. And both of them have tremendous resources in this regard. And when you're going through the spring of 1941, there is numerous sources coming through both through the intelligence apparatus that keep portending the date of invasion. But invariably, the dates pass and nothing ever happens. And mind you, not just Russian intelligence, but also allied intelligence through the British. And the Americans. But the fact of the matter is, there's two parties that he would never trust even when they were in alliance together, and that is what he would consider from his very myopic Marxist-Leninist geopolitical view is the word and intentions of the so-called imperialist capitalist powers. Indeed. He very much sees exactly what's going on here because the British have tried to have a rapprochement after the pact, and they're basically just frozen out in Moscow for the better part of a year and a half when they're hand-in-hand hand with the Germans. And so this incredible buildup is happening on his frontier. And there's an extremely skilled disinformation campaign being enacted by the Germans at the time. They were communicating all sorts of reasonably plausible circumstances that led to their troops being there. One of the most notable ones actually came from Hitler himself when he said, oh, I have them there to keep them out of range of Allied strategic bombing. Another one that gets communicated through the diplomatic means is, oh, they're just on their way to the Middle East to reinforce operations there. Stalin isn't buying any of that, but he does know one thing for certain, is that Hitler is a trying to apply pressure to get the things he wants, specifically the very raw materials that he's trading for. And as the pressure ramps up, so does the flow of these resources from the Soviet Union into Germany. And not to mention the whole idea of two things. One is enforcing the spheres of influence, right, and making sure that there weren't further incursions beyond what was the agreed definition in the agreement, which in and of itself was sort of vague in terms of their understanding. And also there were, you know, as part of this, there was a legitimate military operation going on in the Balkans. Yes, absolutely. Especially Unintended. With yeah, uh, you know, Yugoslavia, Greece. In the spring of 1941. Sure. And there were also, understandably, strategic reasons which Stalin surely understood around the roles of Romania and Bulgaria, as well as Hungary, in terms of sort of other fascist-leaning states and their role vis-a-vis -vis Russia. And they're basically all joining the tripartite pack at this point. Correct. They're, they're all getting in Nazi Germany's quarter because they don't trust Moscow. They don't trust the Soviet communists, and they have no reason to. Not that they have any reason to trust Hitler, but they're going to take Hitler over Stalin, especially because at this point in time, the world is literally sitting stunned by the kind of military achievements that the Wehrmacht has had in the first two years of the war. And so naturally, in the case of the NKVD, this is something we know now after the fall of communism, is they had a bulging intelligence dossier that they codename Vitaya, which translated basically means venture, where they're getting all of these reports and you get these portended dates of invasions that passed with one certain notable exception. I can't say it's the only one, but it's the most historically notable one, which of course is Ricard Sorga in Japan, who is obviously a GRU asset that's attached to the German embassy there. He's working in a journalistic role 
and he's passing on information. But the fact of the matter is no leader of any country has ever lost an empire by taking all of their spies' reports at face value. And of course, Stalin trusts nobody, and especially spies. I think he's very known for saying the spy can never be trusted, not even by himself. Yes. And and I think the trust aspect, which is something that would plague Stalin in many ways, both before and after, certainly played a very strong role, despite seeing all of the pieces on the chessboard in front of him. I think it's quite fascinating. It really is. In many ways, as strategically capable and brilliant as Stalin was in most regards, and we use the term great not in a moral respect, but very much in a stature respect. Yes. That he's one of the most interesting geopolitical strategists of his age and of all time, to be sure. And if you think this has all been a roundabout answer, the answer is, well, kind of. But the fact of the matter is there's literally global context here that we need to fill in in order to really answer the question that has been asked. And so you're getting into the spring of 1941. And even the Germans have had to push back date of invasion, especially due to the Yugoslavia and, and Greece debacle. It didn't hamper them in regards to their success for Barbarossa. I think that's largely been dispelled by most historians at this point. But the fact of the matter is, on top of that, it was also a very wet spring. Yes. And if you spend any time in Russia, especially the European part of Russia, you know the spring and the fall is what we like to call the Rasputitsa, the season where the roads turn to, to total mud. mud. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. And so, and naturally, of course, they're also trying to get this thing started before the summer equinox so they can get as much daylight as possible for every day of invasion going into the fall. So in the case of Stalin, he's obviously he's trying to push this back. He's pushing it back. He's holding on to this thread of he's not going to want to fight a war on two fronts, despite the fact that he's not really doing that in any meaningful respect. And then on top of that, he also felt that Hitler was applying pressure to him, which he was mainly, at least as Stalin saw it, to get more of these raw materials. Mm -hmm. What he underestimated is exactly how aggressive and how determined Hitler was to take on his grand strategic ambition and expand what we now call today the Second World War within six months of invading the Soviet Union into a truly global war. Well, there was such a underestimation of where things stood by the time of the operation that there were still train cars worth of commodities going to crossing the border towards Germany. As they were invading. Correct. And here's the other rub about this thing. And we talked about the disinformation campaign that the Germans were enacting. They didn't even let their representatives diplomatically in the German embassy in Moscow into the German invasion Barbarossa secret. You have the diplomatic presence of Germany in the Soviet Union, and not even they know what is going on at this time. And there's a lot of rumors in terms of what Hitler would demand. I think the most notable one is a 99-year lease on Ukraine. Yes would be pretty ridiculous by any means, to say the least. But th this is the kind of thinking that's happening at the time. And once again, there's the other part of this, is Stalin was very steadfast in his worldview. He very seldom deviated from it. He was very practical within the realm of his thinking. Sure. To be sure. And there was this issue because of how he felt that, you know, he's not going to fight a war on two fronts. You know, this is not something he can pull off at this time. And, he, you know, he's, ha he's hanging on to a wish and a prayer, you know, despite the irony of that having to do with the officially atheist Soviet Union, <laughs> that they can put it off for another year because also, of course, the Red Army is in terrible shape. Yes. And a lot of that is his fault for politically motivated purges against the, 
those who are generating the best leadership and the best doctrine to bring the Red Army forward. You're implementing many, many new weapon systems, and they're really caught on their heels at this point. And if you're the intelligence arm, and he's holding so steadfast to these various aspects, he's trying to put pressure on me, he won't fight a war on two fronts. They were scared to death to tell him things he didn't want to hear that didn't comport with his worldview. Because the reality, guys, that this is a guy who very much undertook and centrally orchestrated purges, statistically, going on a certain margin of how many people were going to either be imprisoned or going to be killed, regardless of who they were. This was just class warfare in his eyes. Just something right out of Game of Thrones, if you will. In the worst possible way. And so he's very much responsible for the state of the Red Army at this point. And those who are working in intelligence are not going to tell him things he doesn't want to hear. And then, of course, the hammer falls. They kick in the door. Yes. All you need to do is kick in the door and the whole rotten edifice will come crashing down. And he was almost right. He was almost right. He obviously was right to start. And maybe that's where we leave it off. It's absolutely true. So... Long story short, guys, Stalin had his own narrative going in his own head. He wanted to see the world he was going to see it. Anytime you have a you know bloodthirsty despot, you generally don't tell them things they don't want to hear, especially one as paranoid and as vicious as Stalin. And in his case, as strange as it sounds, he was far more married to the narrative in his head than the facts that were in front of him, just literally staring him in the face. So we hope that answers your question. And if you want to submit a question to be answered in the Patreon submitted question segment, donate to our podcast at the $5 tier or higher on Patreon, and you can submit such a question. And of course, donating to us on the minimum $3 tier or higher gets you many, many wonderful benefits, including the show two days in advance of its public release, in addition to the very fun and quite enjoyable Director's Cut version, which is a bit more inexpansive version of the episode you hear that has some fun sides, fun quips, a bit more of an in-studio experience, I would say. It enhances the flavor, to be sure. In addition to Volume 1, The Best of BC, where Patrick and I take on some of the more interesting events from the Grand Epoch that predates our show. So we thank our patrons for submitting that question and for donating to us. We could not do it without you, and we could not make the AD history you deserve without your generous contribution month to month. But with that, us here, you there, and we'll be back right after a word from AD. This is the AD History Podcast. Thank you, Anna. So now as we move into our third and last segment today, we're going to talk about how things are boiling over in Gaul. Specifically, its very unique role in case study in the crisis of the third century. And with that, I think it is best to set the scene. Marcus Cassinius Latinius Postumus is the Roman general from Germania Inferior who made his name defending the Rhine borders against Germanic incursions. And he is in northern Italy, and he has received a set of orders from Salinius, who is Caesar, heir apparent, to Galinius, who is the current emperor and son of Emperor Valerian. And Salinius goes to Posthumus and says, the booty that you took from the raiding German parties 
and what is today roughly northern Italy, southern Switzerland, has to be taken back. Because as I understand it, this is also property of Roman citizens because they were effectively liberating them from the German raiding parties that had took them in the first place. But that was well received. Well, he goes before his troops and says, these are my orders. I do not agree with them. Because what he's asked is that his soldiers, from whom he shared those spoils with, liberating those belongings that were most certainly belonged originally to Roman citizens, to give them up. And I don't think it takes a 300-point IQ to realize exactly how dangerous it would be to try to facilitate that, especially what we know about the Roman military at this time. And so he says to them, are my hands truly tied? And it's safe to say that his troops knew exactly what they were going to do next. This is the point where the short-lived but extremely influential and extremely important Gallic Empire was founded. But how the hell did we get here? That's the question, isn't it? Indeed. And it's very interesting because so much of what happened in this specific area was emblematic of where things would go from here on out. Absolutely, and until the crisis would abate. It is such a schism that it almost blows the mind. And this is a two-part story. We will finish our story on the Gallic Empire in the next episode. But like I said, how the hell did we get here? Well, during the crisis of the 3rd century, and especially in recent episodes, Roma's had three major, what we would call today, existential threats beyond their borders. The first is the most talked about Sassanid Persians in the east. You have the Goths running roughshod through the Balkans and Dacia, and you have the Germanic tribes as a mounting threat to invade over the Rhine. And all of these threats are, are continuing to mount, become more successful over time. And the Romans' success in dealing with this is largely questionable, though I think it can best be described as putting one's finger in the proverbial dike. In this case, and that's for a number of reasons. One is, with the legionaries also fighting the civil war of the weak, they're less concerned with protecting Rome's borders. After centuries of mostly military dominance, the Romans' military was no longer innovating whatsoever. Their dominance was most certainly going down. And their enemies, for the most part, Sassanids are a great example of this, they began adapting their battle tactics to Rome, furthering their understanding of warfare, and becoming a much greater threat. This is also true of the Goths and, and the Germans in and across the Rhine. But insofar as the crisis of the 3rd century dealt with many very serious existential threats, in many ways it is the domestic decline and regression that really, really sets the foundation of the rot that is effectively setting in to this great ancient superpower. The key narrative of the internal decline, the internal rotting, it feels like this is really where it's coming to a head. In Gaul especially. So with the empire straddling between these mounting greater existential threats and the domestic insurrection of the weak, Roman subjects of the provinces began losing confidence that Rome could actually protect them. And we were talking about confidence in an economic respect as far as 
being able to have a functioning economy where people are making money producing goods and the whole system is flowing. And this is very much tied to that in every single way, because as you mentioned earlier, all of these things are intrinsically connected. And on top of that, they began raising and training local militias and building local fortifications at their own expense. And when a local population of more distant provinces begin to lose faith in your ability to protect them, after which they take measures to protect themselves like these, it is not a good sign for how loyal they will remain to the central government in the long run, especially in a place like Gaul where they had their own traditions prior to Roman influence and being under Roman hegemony. And they also begin to surface as well over time throughout this issue. Though, as the expenditure for Roman military continued to increase beyond a reasonable expectation to bear, other critical obligations began to suffer. One of the largest is undoubtedly the significant falling expenditure on building infrastructure and maintaining infrastructure being very, very important here. Rome was famous for bringing with it its engineering and major construction prowess, and by extension helping facilitate economic growth in the provinces by its construction, Rome's strength as an entity over time was just as founded in its engineering as it was its army, but even this is beginning to fade away. Moreover, the provinces were experiencing cultural decentralization. The central government was not only cutting spending on infrastructure, but it wasn't spending on things like festivals or games or acting as strong a benefactor to the Greco-Roman temples that are basically erected everywhere. Well, it is interesting because it's dovetailing directally with the things we were talking about economically. Absolutely. They're hand in hand. It's, it's, amazing yes. the, it's, it's amazing the overlap that exists here. Absolutely. And so while this is happening, I will note that when it comes to things like festivals and games, a lot of that many times is actually sponsored by prominent local families, but they obviously do pull from the treasure trove in the central government in order to be able to subsidize these sort of things because the cultural influence here is extremely important long term. That's always the Roman power. Yes, Roman power is found through their legions, but Roman staying power and longevity is brought with the civilization they take with them. Absolutely. And I'd also say that there was a phenomenon in the provinces at this time where essentially revenue had to be raised locally to pay for these now locally raised militia and to develop fortifications and basically be autonomous. And it's very difficult to pay two masters in this case. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge deal. Beyond the blood, sword, and engineering, all of these provinces are held together through shared Roman political traditions as well. Though as the populations of the provinces began to view the Roman central government as a degenerate, almost exclusively present to hit them up for cash and provide little in return, we have a growing recipe for significant insurrection here. To make things even worse, Rome was experiencing its second major plague in just under a century that starts in the late 240s and ends in the early 260s, what we call the Plague of Cyprian. And much like the Antonine Plague before, this had incredible damage. We don't need to explain to any modern listener today to know exactly the damage that is caused by a health pandemic. And of course, during this time, Rome, for the first time in a very long while, its population dips below a million, and it may have gotten even as low as 500,000 
And so at this point, the Cyprian Plague doing what it's doing in this particular decade, it is another element of destabilization in the crisis of the third century. And you have this absolute perfect storm of everything going wrong and the political system being in total chaos. The economic and financial aspects of it are totally blown away. And what we are looking at right now is the perfect storm for Rome. And quite frankly, it is, if you live there in that time and that place, must have been disturbing as hell. And so when we move forward in all of this, there is a particularly notable event that occurs out in the Roman East, something that had never happened before. We know about the ignominy of the Totenberg Forest in 9 AD and what that meant to Rome at the time. That does not hold a candle to what happened in this decade to Valerian out in the Roman East fighting the Sassanid Empire. And in 260, Emperor Valerian, at the head of a Roman army, fought the Sassanid Empire under Shapur I. But it was not merely the military defeat that was so crippling to Rome, because they got it handed to them. You remember back in our previous episode when I was talking about how Shapur I took Roman soldiers and took advantage of their engineering expertise to build a dam and bridge that still operates to this day in modern-day Iran? That's the party that he's taking it from. But it's not this military defeat that's so big for them. No, what was so crippling to the entire morale of the empire, what was a profound disgrace, was that unlike any emperor before him, Valerian was taken prisoner alive by the Sassanid Persians. Ouch. This is a total kicking the nads to Rome at this point. Because like I said, this is not just a matter of the military defeat. The Romans have been defeated in battle in grand ways. When you look at the Totenberg Forest, they actually did manage to recover some of their dignity in later decades, specifically with the work of Germanicus that we talked about way back in season one. But that doesn't hold a candle to taking a Roman emperor alive. And what's worse is that his successor, would never be able to avenge him, and Valerian would spend the rest of his natural life in the captivity of the Sassanid Persians. Truly a symbol of the crumbling Roman hegemony that is existing at this time. Where does this bring us? We have, in the case of the Goths, their very serious incursions into Dacia and the Balkans. But it gets worse. Much, much worse. Not bad for barbarians. No. Valerian's son, who was Caesar, who then became emperor, Gallienus, had himself a bit of a problem. Not only are you dealing with these other existential threats elsewhere in the empire, in front of him, he has a incredibly capable, organized, and vicious Sassanid Persian army. And behind him, we have another usurper sitting in the Balkans whose troops proclaim him emperor. 
So he's literally knitted in. You can't go forward. You can't go back. You cannot avenge the capture of your father. You cannot rescue him. And this is a terrible situation for the Empire at this point. And when we go and we begin focusing once again on Gaul, they're having their experience of the crisis of the third century, which includes so many of the elements that we mentioned both in this segment and in our first segment as well. And it was an opportunity for the one that we call posthumous to come onto the scene. Gaul, for all its worth, experienced numerous incursions by various Germanic tribes across the Rhine, specifically the Alemanni and the Franks as the most notable threats in that regard as being part of this greater Germanic barbaric tribes, as the Romans would call them. And so naturally, as this is all occurring, the Gauls are having a greater crisis of confidence in the central Roman government's ability to protect them, or perhaps even their interest in doing so in general. With the empire wrought with conflict, both external and domestic, with their emperor Valerian in Sassanid captivity, they were reasonably questioning whether the Roman Empire had nearly both feet in its proverbial grave. The new emperor Gallianus was at this point in the Roman East, totally knitted in, and he's stuck. And in this case, Posthumus, who is the governor of Germania Inferior, who might I add is not actually even Roman. He comes from a lower aristocracy in Gallic society during the Roman period. But for the most part, he was something of a self-made man insofar as startups and social mobility truly existed in Roman society. But remember, he's not coming from Roman society, but he serves Rome's interests. And so he definitely develops a reputation as being very, very capable of keeping the Germans on their side of the freaking river. And as this crisis of confidence begins to move further, he begins to see an opportunity. You know, it's sort of interesting. You, you were talking a little bit about his status as governor and the fact that he was a bit of an outsider from that perspective. I think, you know, when you think about a little bit about how Roman governors were appointed. There were two separate means of being appointed. There were the, the true provinces, which were all imperially appointed, and then sort of the inner provinces, really the, the Roman core, were appointed by the Senate. Yeah, that was part of the, the great agreement and understanding that came together under Augustus. If they belonged under the providence of the emperor particularly, those were the ones that were most strategically significant. Absolutely. And most likely to have somebody who was not through the traditional Roman order. Most definitely, especially when you look at like places like Egypt and whatnot, which was most definitely an imperial province. And one thing to note, even though we mentioned it way, 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 way back in the first season, imperial provinces were very, very touchy. Specifically, as I understand it, certainly at that time, and I can't imagine it changed much, you needed the express permission of whoever was print caps and then later after the first century officially emperor to even enter them because they were that strategically significant that if they had fallen under the control of a usurper, it could throw the whole thing apart. Exactly. Naturally, Posthumus is put into this incredibly august position, all pun intended. <laughs> 
he and his troops go and basically repel a raid in what we consider about northern Italy today. And they take, in the case of Posthumus, he obviously liberates all of those belongings and then proceeds to share them with his troops, which is kind of what you do. But this did not sit well with the decision makers in Rome, specifically because the things that they were liberating were most certainly property of actual Roman citizens that the Germans had taken themselves. Hmm. And this is where we come back to where we started. He receives the fateful order by Salianus, who is Caesar and heir apparent to Gallianus, that they expect the booty that he shared with his troops to be returned. And as we started out in the beginning, exactly if you have any sense of self-preservation, what exactly are the chances Posthumus was going to go and do that? All we had to do was do a few decades of the third century to know what was going to happen. Exactly. And so this doesn't sit well with him. And of course, he is told to march his troops to Colonia Agrippina, where his troops will then forfeit this ill-begotten booty. And indeed, he marches them there. But when he gets there, as we started at the beginning, he tells his troops, I do not agree with this order. I do not agree with this order. I condemn the bastards who gave it to us. And so whatever is it possible that we can do to fix this? And we know what the answer to this is because it kept going again and again and again throughout this crisis of the third century. We know the soldiers are very keen at this point to know what comes next, that what they're going to do is what everybody else has been doing for decades at this point is proclaim their man emperor. But he does something that's very unusual at this point, something that is very ahistorical to the trends up to this point. Whereas so many of his predecessors decide to do the one thing that you would imagine all of them would do, which is march on Rome, posthumous, demure. And it is at this point, and where we'll pick up in our next episode and tell the formation and story of the Gallic Empire as it existed in its short time. But it is here in Colonia Agrippina with Posthumus, with his troops declaring him emperor, that the empire is going to fall into formal schism, where the Gallic Empire will include Gaul. It will include parts of southern England and for a time, even parts of Hispania. And despite the fact that it is short-lived, it is the absolute best case study for exactly how much Rome is degenerating on a day-by-day basis, how quickly these events are transpiring. And what the greatest fear of all Roman leaders up to this point most certainly would be has now occurred in Gaul. It is through this act that leads directly to the formation of the Gallic Empire. That is a great place to leave off. I will say that as you explore this in the next episode, we're going to see a model 
that gets repeated over and over again for the next several centuries and something that they'll be great to listen from. Oh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. But you and I today, the exclusion of our middle segment, of course, which is a total historical whiplash. You think it's a whiplash for you listening? Tell you what, it was a whiplash for us doing it. Indeed. But we now fully see the seeds, the proof in the pudding that has made this a crisis of epic proportions. And it only leaves you in greater awe for what Diocletian manages to accomplish a few decades down the road, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. He's the Scotty from Star Trek for the (laughs) the Empire, doing the impossible with nothing. Yes, absolutely. Just a whole lot of pressure, ingenuity, and maybe some bubble gum and scotch tape. Maybe just scotch. (laughs) Oh, holy hell, yes, absolutely. Well, Robert, thank you so much for joining us here today. Do you have anything else to add for us in this discussion, anything whatsoever? I think the only thing I can add is first off to thank you and Patrick for this opportunity. We are honored to have you on and we hope to have you back. And even more so, thanking the listeners for an opportunity to talk to them. And I know that you learn a lot from them. And so I'm looking forward to hearing more and obviously following what you're doing with Patrick. You are a gentleman to the last. And I could not be more thankful for coming here in person, in studio, doing our first all-in-one physical location episode of AD History. And of course, Patrick will be back for our next episode. Like you said, he is off today. But all with that, Robert, thank you so much. And us here, you there, and we'll be back right after a word from Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Well, that does it for us today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally primarily on Instagram at NameExplainYT. But you can also find me on Twitter at NameExplainYT and, of course, on YouTube search NameExplain. What about you, Paul? In addition to my usual work at TGNR at TGNReview.com, you can find me at my Twitter handle at PKD in History, as well as my reader-submitted World War II Q&A column, The World War II Brain Bucket, where I answer all World War II-related questions, which, if you are on YouTube, we will have a link down in the description. That's all today for myself. Goodbye, thank you, and take care. Yes, thank you all so much. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC, as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash ADHistoryPodcast and Instagram as AD History Podcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching AD History Podcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. For Paul and Patrick... Thank you for listening to the AD History. 
We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.